Looking to create your best self, whether it's good for you lifestyle hacks, smarter ways to supplement, or tasty tips to fuel optimal health, Talk Healthy Today provides you the latest research tools and common sense tips you need to get and stay healthy starting today. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Talk Healthy Today. I am absolutely in love with doing this podcast. I would be thrilled if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the podcast. Now, on to the show. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Talk Healthy Today. I just read a fantastic book. It is called Feed Zone Table, Family Style Meals to Nourish Your Life and Sport. This is not only an amazing cookbook, I made some of the recipes, but it gets into a lot of really important things when it comes to loneliness and culture and family and athleticism and athletes and isolation. And before I give it all away, I'm going to bring in the fantastic authors, Bijou Thomas and Alan Lim. Hello, gentlemen. So excited to have you on. We're excited to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Well, the book is just phenomenal. Now, Alan, in the preface you write, we always believe that physical activity and sport are central to our individual and cultural health. I love that you include cultural health. What does that mean to you? Uh, culture for me is 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 the structure that um, you know gives us the rule set for how we live in society, right? Um, you know, I think Michael Pollan said it really well when he said, culture is what your mom fed you, right? It's that expectation of, you know, uh, normalcy and, you know, cultural health is whether or not we have enough structure in our lives that we can have normal expectations about, you know, how to live. Um, and, you know, for athletes, that structure is really important for human beings as a whole. That's really, really important. We live in a society that is so innovative that we're constantly making up the rules and changing the rules. And I think while that is really exciting to me as well, it's also nice to know that there are certain things that you can always believe in and rely on. Talk to us, Alan, about being in Europe and, and feeling lonely and isolated. And you were also saying that it's not something that's really talked about in competitive sports and athletics. Yeah. You know, I think competitive athletes, especially Americans, we are so bent on doing every little thing to optimize our performance that that flows over to the way we eat, obviously, and to nutrition. And obviously, sports nutrition is super, super important. And a well-fed athlete will perform much better than an athlete who doesn't care about how they eat. But there are extremes. And a lot of athletes will take that to the extreme of believing that because they're an athlete, they need to eat a particular way that is exclusive to others. And so they ultimately end up isolating because of that. Right? And they find themselves uh, no longer eating with their friends or their family. And in a world where eating disorders are a real issue, this only reinforces negative eating behaviors and eating disorders. Um, I saw uh, making athletes eat together as a way, first and foremost, to combat those eating disorders. But secondarily, I also found that a lot of that uh eating in isolation created a real kind of epidemic of loneliness amongst the athletes that I worked with. And so there was a lot of social bonding that occurred around the family uh, dinner, just like it does, you know, when we were growing up, as Bijou explained. And that really helped to also, you know, reinforce the tribe that we were building, the family we were trying to build, the team we were trying to build, right? Um, what's interesting is that when we eat together, um, 
the behavior becomes more socially normative, right? We start to respond to how others are behaving as well. And we start to realize that a lot of what we might be doing in isolation is just freaky and weird. (laughs) You know, eating together solved a, a lot of problems when I was working with primarily American athletes who were living abroad in Europe you know, very, very far away from their family. Well, it's interesting, too, because you write in the book, we are not interested in perpetuating the idea that there has to be a certain way that athletes eat for performance that is somehow different from how non-athletes eat for health and well-being. And you go on to say that it took you a lot of time to develop this perspective. So what shifted for you? Yeah, I think that a big influence there was just realizing how different um people eat as cultures. So I grew up with a specific kind of Chinese meal set, right? Um, you know, a typical Chinese meal in, in my home was was always a base of rice, you know, definitely some sort of sauteed or cooked vegetable, and maybe just a little bit of animal protein, right? And that was essentially it throughout my whole and child, entire childhood. I then moved on to the pro cycling tour where now we've got athletes from all over the world, And they all brought some kind of cultural set or way of eating. And at my first Tour de France, what I realized was that you had these athletes who were performing at such a high level, and yet they all had such such different beliefs about food, right? And that there wasn't this kind of scientifically right construct of how they needed to eat. And if all of these different cultures could still perform at this extraordinarily high level on such different diets, it got me rethinking about what was actually optimal, right? Um, you know, on the, on, on the pro tour, you know, you've got athletes from, you know, North America, from Europe, from South America. And I would probably say that it's sometimes harder to change, uh, harder to change how somebody eats than it is to change their religion, right? (laughs) There are real belief systems there and there were high performers there. And so, you know, regardless of, of the food, what was kind of maybe defining for the, the team set was that we all sat down and ate together. Oh, that's nice. Now, Bijou, when did you know that you wanted to be a chef? Uh, interesting question. I'm still thinking about that one. Um, <laughs> but I grew up, uh, I grew up in a big family where everybody cooks, everybody eats together. And I'm one of six, uh, siblings, um, in my family and coming up in the eighties, nineties, you know, being Indian, we didn't have a lot of options of other places to eat. And also being, you know, a very working class uh, family, we ate together all the time. So coming from that background, food and cooking was always part of life. And then I got into cycling in 85. Um, and so the same season that I got into bike racing, I started my first restaurant job. And the two of them kind of grew together over the years and uh, eventually figured out that uh, you spend enough time in kitchens, you kind of learn how to cook. And that was really it. I just, uh, I loved um, feeding people, cooking for people, and really kind of, you know, experimenting with how to create that sense of hospitality and friendship and fun around people. So it was more of that and less about being a chef. So to that point, I never went to culinary school because that to me seemed like a whole other universe. I just wanted to cook for people. And that's where it started. So yeah, it's, uh, it was something I really couldn't escape. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Now, in the book, I think it's you, Bijou, tell me, you share a story where your mother would give you the soup and it had the rice and the broth and you would, you and your siblings would critique a little more of this, a little less of that. This is, you know, could you add more fried onion next time? Yeah, exactly. So I've always thought that 
to be a really good cook, because especially now we saw this last year during, you know, 2020, when a lot of folks had time at home to finally cook, uh, to be a really good cook, all you really need to do is be a good eater. And if you pay attention to what you like to eat and what actually makes you happy, um, what lights up the other people at the table, that really helps. And coming from a family where we constantly, it wasn't a negative critique. It was always like, oh, what did you do different last time? Because this time it feels softer, it's crunchier. So it's this constant conversation about food that just allowed us to grow in our ideas around food and how to get the most flavors out of really humble ingredients and really basic things. So that was really it was less about being mean. It was just more about learning, of course. learning what we did different. And of course, mom is tired. She worked all day. She's got to feed everybody. She's got a million other things to do. She, and she was still patient and very, you know, and she loved it. She still, you know, it's like any, any mom loves when her kids eat with her. So, you know, it, it was a great place to learn and grow as a cook. Oh, that's awesome. Now, how did you two guys come together? Yes. Alan, tell us, how did we come together? <laughs> uh, we met through a mutual friend, Jonathan Botters, who was the uh, owner manager of the pro cycling team that I worked with at the time, which was the Garmin professional cycling team. And uh, Bijou was catering for a little dinner party uh, that Jonathan had. And uh, I found it a lot more interesting hanging out with Bijou in the kitchen uh, than sitting around, you know, um, schmoozing, if you will. So, you know, uh, we found that we had a lot of similarities in terms of our immigrant background, in terms of our, you know, childhood adult love for, for cycling, and that we just loved great food and loved talking about food, um, despite not having kind of a formal vocabulary around, you know, the culinary arts. And I think that's so nice when you have that commonality and you can come together and create such an incredible book. Again, Feed Zone Table, Family Style Meals to Nourish Life and Sport. We will get into the wonderful recipe shortly, but I want to talk about families eating together. Quote, though many of us intuitively feel that family meals are beneficial, there's also clear scientific evidence that children who eat more frequently with their families are physically and psychologically better off. I thought it was so great that you took the time. You guys have a lot of great statistics a lot of good information. Why was that so important to you, Alan, to really emphasize this and then Bijou as well? You know, I think that for me, it's this idea that you can't separate mind and body, right? Um, that we are always looking for ways to be healthier, to be better, to, you know, improve ourselves. And, you know, we come up with very technological solutions to try to do so. And yet, oftentimes, it's really just our mindset that has this profound effect on our body. You know, as an example, in the Framingham Heart Study, which is the longest longitudinal study on heart disease, obviously, smoking is one of the largest correlates to heart disease, right? Um, but second to smoking is self-reported loneliness, right? The issue is, is that cigarettes come with a warning label, but in our culture, loneliness does not. Likewise, when you talk about how um, kids respond and, and, and grow and develop and what is uh, psychologically healthy and how that affects their physiological health, um, just being with their parents, having that a time where everyone can be engaged with one another is profoundly impactful, right? Um, and the scientific evidence, which is, is really interesting, 
I was trying to find evidence that could apply to athletes, but I found this whole kind of treasure trove of just, you know, data on its own that showed how much better kids did when they ate as a family and that consistency, um, especially for girls, um, that the impact seemed to be um, either more profound for the girls or more negative for, for girls when they didn't have it. So when you look at things like performance in school, you look at, you know, propensity to, um, you know, use drugs at an early age, et cetera, all of these kind of both positive and negative outcomes, um, all of the negative outcomes were improved. All the positive outcomes were improved when kids ate with their parents or ate together. Wow, that's huge. And Beiju, that's the way you were raised, right? That you ate as a family? Yeah, for sure. And then uh, you, you take it that one step further. You think about a lot of the families um, growing up in the 70s, 80s, into the 90s. I think there was a significant shift happening towards the tail end of the 90s. But, you know, we ate together and we all ate the same thing, you know. And uh, while there are a lot of valid um, food concerns now with allergies and issues and whether that is part of the food production system or it was just us, you know, inherently being adverse and having issues. But a lot of the times, if you think back to when we were kids, you didn't get to pick and choose what you ate. You either ate or you didn't eat, you know? So that kind of also created an understanding of boundaries and borders and where to push, right? So I feel like it wasn't just about getting calories or just eating. It was also learning how to behave in a social system and learning how to behave within the family, which ultimately helped prepare you for the real world when you eventually had to go and face it. But for certain, um, Alan and I had very similar uh, upbringings and childhoods um, in that context. Yeah. Yeah. I was a kid in the seventies and my mom's cooking was horrendous because (laughs) she was spice of her. So she would make a huge pot of chili and it'd have like a teaspoon of chili powder. So we would, so we would have to get the cheese and the Rosarita at the time, hot sauce that we used and just, put so much other stuff in it to make it palatable. So I'm a big spice fan. Nice. My spice is hot and tons of garlic and ginger and the whole thing. So very, very different experience that my daughter has. Now, the other thing I thought was so interesting is you talk about the ethnocentric look with looking at culture and family to moving to a more technologically driven technocentric aspect of food and family and culture Bijou, can you expand on that for us? Looking at, in particular in Colorado or in the middle of America now, where in the 70s, 80s coming up, we didn't have a lot of options for styles of food or for ingredients. I don't remember even having fresh cilantro available in most Colorado stores oh, wow. um, up until maybe the you know mid-90s. So in the 70s, that was not happening. 80s, it was not happening. Jalapeno, there, you could go into the entire grocery store, there would have been two of them in there. So... <laughs> You know, we come from like how much the different cultures have impacted our diets at large and just our understanding of cultures and different ethnicities at large. So as far as um, I think Alan can speak to the technocentric aspect of it a bit more, but as far as coming from, you know, each of us having our own little very ethnocentric kind of takes on food to having a more global approach um, on food and influences is really been something that I've thought about a lot. I don't know if that answers the question, but yeah. Alan, yeah. Yeah. What I, what I would say is that, you know, when you look at food from an ethnocentric perspective, you're looking at how people eat 
over thousands of years and how food culture is passed on from generation to generation to generation. And so you start talking about, oh, this is Italian or this is French or this is Chinese food, right? And because these food systems were established and developed over so such a long period and were also developed in context of, you know, likely a much more rigorous physical uh, lifestyle, right, where there was just a lot more work done. These food systems are kind of in harmony with our own physiology. And, you know, over the last hundred years, we have changed from a very industrialized food system where now we're talking about calories, carbohydrates, fat, proteins. We're taking this very technological look at food, micronutrients, macronutrients, vitamins, you know, probiotics, etc. blah, 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 blah. And we have kind of, I think, conned ourselves into believing that we could develop the perfect kind of human diet. But what that has done is that is that has pulled us away from any kind of cultural um, way of eating, right? And, you know, I think that that abrupt change in food systems um, has probably wreaked more havoc on our health than any other factor out there. And so while I'm a firm believer in science, and I'm highly interested in the science, I think that we also have to pay respect and homage to, you know, this ethnocentric uh, viewpoint on food, right? Um, And that also includes the context by which that food was eaten. So if our food systems were developed around a physically active lifestyle, we also can't avoid that. Yeah, it's so interesting. The other thing, and we, I think most people have heard about, is the French paradox. They're like, well, how come they're eating this and that, and they're not having heart disease? But there's so much more to it, and you talk about how the paradox, that doesn't only exist in France, and that part of the issue is that, uh, that you write, that Americans emphasize quantity over quality, right? And That's if right. we could just get more fresh, real, high-quality foods, instead of eating a whole big platter of crap— I mean, yeah. you know, right, Bijou, if you yeah. want to expand yeah. on this, you probably say it more eloquently. Than I well, do. no, it's it's absolutely true. If you think about, we don't really have a specific food culture. Um, and to Alan's point, you'd think very much Italian, you know, in all of our minds, we immediately go to pasta, cheese, olive oil. We think Japanese, we think rice and fish. You know, we can very distinctly draw something that um, immediately reflects that culture. Americans, good and bad, in that we've had such an influx of, you know, different cultures and different foods and so many immigrant cultures that have brought different foods. So America doesn't really have a specific food that other than if you ask anybody anywhere in the world, it's always, you know, cheeseburgers, but that's not really a positive reflection of what reality is for Americans. And, you know, we have a friend in common, um, Alan and I do, he's in his seventies. He absolutely will not eat vegetables because he did not grow up eating fresh vegetables. And we've even tried to sneak vegetables into his dinners. And he's like, you know, my, my mom was an awful cook. I grew up with TV dinners in the sixties and seventies. That's all I can eat. So in a way, I feel like it's a loss for so many Americans that didn't come because we don't have you know, hundreds of years of this, we've got, you know, food culture has really been developing in the last 10 to 20 years, um, it seems like. And it's, to Alan's point, it's a mix of everything under the sun with no real specific purpose behind why we eat the way we eat. Um, It's very interesting. I think about that a lot as it reflects 
you know, day laborers and people that do really physical work around the world, um, the different types of diet and how often they eat and how much they eat and the size and shape of their body. And it really specifically is for a specific task that they grew up doing or generationally have done. Yeah. Now we're all sitting yeah. behind desks doing, uh, you know, Zooms all day. You know, culturally also how we are taught to eat with one another can affect something as simple as portion size, which can have profound, you know, physiological effects. So, for example, in Japan, it's a culture that definitely has a fast food fetish, but it's also a culture where you always eat family style. So if you went with your family in Asia to a fast food restaurant, you wouldn't be just getting a single happy meal for yourself, right? You'd be picking and choosing from the menu and you might throw down in the middle of a table one soda that is shared by, you know, the whole entire group of people, you know, a burger that is handed around, you know, fries that are communal. And in that communal style of eating, what ends up happening is that you end up just eating less, right? you end up leaving just as satisfied as if you had a whole entire meal by yourself in your car stuck in traffic. Right. It's that social aspect that's so important. And that when I'm reading the book, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this year with COVID has been so brutal. And uh, Bijou, before you came on, before we started taping, I asked Alan if he's been doing like Zoom meals with people because at least it's something. I mean, it's not the same, yeah. but at least you can see your friends. How's it been for you, Bijou, this this past year? Um, I haven't done Zoom meals. Alan and I have spent a lot of time together this year. Um, when this whole thing started, we were the only people to see each other for a while. Um, and But along the way, I started doing Zoom meals where uh, we have one tomorrow, in fact, where we get a bunch of ingredients together, ship it out to 30, 40 people. We all cook together. We all eat together. Awesome. Um, we've done quite a few with our Scratch team, and I'm doing one with some other local uh, foundation friends tomorrow. So it's been, one, getting people to cook a little bit, eat a little bit, hang out. You know, that has definitely helped. It's been, it's interesting, and it's, you know, it, we got to break up the monotony a little bit. So it's been really good. Absolutely. And Alan, were you teasing me? Have you really not had Zoom meals with friends? So he's like, no, I've just been isolated. I will say this. I, this is the most isolated I have been, you know, I think in my entire life. And I yeah. think it reinforces the importance of us getting vaccinated, taking care, caring, uh, uh, taking care of ourselves and uh, hopefully getting back to normal really, really soon. And yes, while I, I have had Zoom meals and I've tried to do my best to kind of create little pods that I can get together with, it's just not the same, right? Yeah. Um, so I think we're all looking forward to being able to get back together and that the impact of COVID, you know, is profound uh, because it has, you know, kind of, it, it, it has hit at almost every aspect of our structure and culture. Yeah, it absolutely has. And that's why I think right now people should definitely get your book, Feed Zone Table, because it, it's hopeful, right? And let's, you know, we are going to get back. We are going to get yeah. back to being with our friends and family. Just wear your damn mask, people. Anyway, that's all. <laughs> like, come yeah, on. And I, and I think it's a reminder for all of us that if you have felt like crud during this last year, if, if you have been in a fog, if you don't quite know why things aren't quite right when otherwise we're still breathing, our needs have been met. It may be as simple as the fact that 
we have to get back to spending time with one another again. Yeah. We have to get back to sharing meals together. You know, we have to get back in the kitchen uh, with friends and families and a diversity of people uh, besides, you know, just our core pod. Right. I mean, I love my my husband and my daughter, but honestly, I'm like, can we just see somebody else? Can somebody else come over for dinner? I mean, this is getting ridiculous, but I have made them some of these delicious meals. So let's jump in. Okay. We're going to start with drinks. Yes. So I'm excited for when it's hot. Oh, I guess I don't have to wait till it's hot, but you have a lemon hibiscus iced tea with honey. I love hibiscus, hibiscus. What do you say? Hibiscus or hibiscus? I go with hibiscus. Hibiscus. That's probably proper. You can right? say it however you wish. Hibiscus. It's such a beautiful, yeah. beautiful drink. And for folks at home who know, you know, hibiscus is a, a flower and it's very, very popular in Mexican cuisine. So you can go to any local Mexican market um, or Mexican aisle, Asian market, Asian aisles, you'll see dried hibiscus flowers that are really inexpensive. You can cook with it. You can make teas with it. It adds this really bright, rosy pink uh, blush to pretty much anything. It has a really subtle flavor note. It's a beautiful thing. And uh, I love like, you know, and Alan spent a lot of time in Spain where you'd get these gorgeous gin drinks with berries and flowers in them. It's it's so beautiful. And uh, so we like playing with a lot of flowers and colors and all the things we make. So it definitely, it comes from that. Yeah, just seeing a beautiful meal, a beautiful drink like that is is amazing. And hibiscus is so refreshing. Um, in fact, you know, if you look at all the celestial seasonings teas, they're almost all hibiscus type teas, and they make great iced teas. Yeah, yeah. they do. Another one that I want to make is the Mumbai spice chai. Now, yeah. how does that differ? Would you say from like a chai that you get at like a local coffee shop or something? Is that it? What what type of chai would you say that is? So anymore, uh, the chais they can get at most shops um, has become so good. Um, you get all the flavor notes, you get everything in it. And in India, so depending on what part of the country you go to, so I'm from the way in the south. Mumbai is the biggest big city uh, in the middle of the country, and we're south of there. We add very little. So I come from what is known as the you know the area where all the spice trade happened along the coast, Goa and Kerala. And when you go get chai there, all it is is black tea, sugar, and milk. We add nothing to it. So as you get further up north, there'll be a little sprinkle of crushed cardamom in there. You get a touch of cinnamon. And then you get really crazy as you get further up north towards Nepal, Tibet. You get, you know, dried ginger. You get um, you get peppercorns crushed into there. Uh, so on the Mumbai side, um, in the central part, you definitely get some cardamom and some cinnamon and you get that and a little pepperiness from really, you know, bright, intense cinnamon. That's really it. And, but you can get killer chai everywhere now. It's, it's great. Yeah, but I, I'm going to make yours. I Good. am also excited to make the homemade hot chocolate. I love that there's cinnamon in it. One of my favorite things is Mexican chocolate. I love oh the God. chocolate yeah. with the cinnamon. It's like nothing else. It's so good. Have you had um, the Mexican coffee? Alan took me to this uh, taco shop in California. They just had this intensely black coffee with cane sugar and a ton of cinnamon in it. It was so Ooh. ridiculously good. It was just, They had cinnamon sticks in there, so it was like intense. It wasn't grainy powder. It was just like steeped in it. Al, where was that? We went and got tacos at that little street side shop when we were there a couple of years ago. Do you remember it? We went to California. I can't remember. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, you know, it, it's funny because, so I've been in next month, it'll be 21 years that I've been on the East coast. Okay. I was raised in California. And when my husband and I decided to move, the first thing I thought of was, are you kidding me? Like, you can't take me away from the Mexican food here. This yeah. is insane. Like, and let me tell you, it's not good here in New England. There's like <laughs> one place that's okay. But uh, <laughs> we went back to California in tw- summer of 2019 for the first time in 17 years. And we ate at this place in Los Gatos, California called Undele. We ate there every single day. Like we were, oh, we were in California for two weeks. Like I think I'm like, I just got to get my fill. And I still, I had a dream recently that there was an Undele here. And when I woke up, I was like, oh man, <laughs> it was so good. All right. Let's move on to your starters. I made your classic hummus. It was delicious. I love hummus. And I want to make your grilled bread and artichokes with dipping oil. My daughter is emotional obsessed, but she loves artichokes. So talk to us about those two. And if there's any that I don't bring up, because they all grab me, but, you know, I I want you to be like, oh, well, you should try this starter. Or how about this side? Or, you know, I just grabbed some that really, like, jumped out at me. For sure. So with the book, and this is the third one in the series that we did. Our first one came out in uh, 2011, I want to say. So... We wanted to make sure that, and they're all the feed zone. The first one is a feed zone. Second one, we did feed zone portables, which was all just food to make and take for your run, ride, event, whatever. So this one, we really wanted to make family-style meals. We wanted people to just sit down together, eat together, and have fun, colorful food. But across all three of the books, we wanted everything to be really common, available ingredients, no weird techniques, no substitutes of anything. If you want to eat sugar, eat real sugar. If you're going to have fat, have real butter. You don't have to have it, but that's the key. And again, this is a very simple one. You take whole artichokes. Um, you cook them in some salted water for about 45 minutes until they get tender. You clean it up. You core it. Just grill it to get grill marks. So you get a little bit of that char, that earthiness, and make a lovely little lemon juice, olive oil, salt, parmesan, you know, just a little drip oil, some grilled bread. It's so simple. Like you could teach any 10-year-old kid how to make it, but it's so beautiful and elegant the way that it plates. And we've got a really nice, nice picture in there. So it's one of those wonderful things that looks like it took all day, but it doesn't. Yeah, it did look like it took all day because it's gorgeous. The picture is stunning. All the pictures are stunning. And and the recipes were designed to to not be complicated, right? Um, I think there were a couple of things we wanted to reinforce and teach. We wanted to reinforce and teach that if you were an athlete, that just eating whole real food that was cooked in your own kitchen probably did a better job than going down this rabbit hole of what supplement or thing I needed to take or what package I needed to open, right? There is no substitute uh, for just basic real food and that this was the same food that the rest of your family could eat. The difference with athletes may only be portion size, right? Um, So keeping things simple, um, having things be really beautiful. We also wanted to also showcase meals that you could cook with the whole family and that this would be about everyone participating rather than just one person taking it all on. And I think that for for me in terms of cooking for others, um, when I realized that people wanted to cook with me, rather than trying to have this perfect spread or table ready to go when friends came over and you just let people see the process, you know, literally see how the sausage is made. It was a lot more fun. (laughs) And you just, you know, bring people in and and a dish like that is something that everyone can, can be a part of. Yeah. 
Lisa, one of the coolest things we did in there is the ramen. So the the ramen, we were all going through a ramen phase at the time. We were, Alan and I were making different ramen broths every day. We, we do this with fried chicken all the time now, where we're constantly comparing notes on fried chicken. But this was, uh, you know, four or five years ago, we were making so much ramen. And then Alan figured out how to make the pr- perfect noodles at home. He got the knife. He got the, the little thing to cut on. So he got perfect cuts. The ramen in there is amazing, and it's beautifully plated, and it's really well done. It's a gorgeous dish, and then he, we mixed in um, some Korean chilies and did a separate, um, you know, a Korean seasoned salad also. So, again, the idea was, like, if you really want to go nuts and make everything from scratch, have at it. But there's other ways to, you know, take existing things and make a beautiful dish also. And to Alan's point, the, the idea was everybody gets to partake, everybody gets to do it. And I think... When you also talk about athletes eating or people eating for active lives and eating at home, we typically think, I'm going to sit down, eat one big meal, and I'm done. I'm going to go to sleep. I got other things to do where we did put starters in there. We did put a couple dessert because, you know, break it up into a few different courses. You don't have to just sit, eat one thing and be done. You could actually make it, you know, a three, four hour thing. You're at home. Eat one thing. Go do, go do something else. Eat something else. You know, one, you're going to digest better. You're going to have a better experience. And uh, yeah. You get to, everybody gets to participate. Yeah, I think that's such a great idea. Now, in the side salads and soups, I did make the chili and lime spice based scallops. I love scallops. Those were delicious. Uh, you also have a sweet potato stuffed wonton soup. Now, I have to be honest, like I look at that and I think that must be complicated. Like, I've never made that before. So I think it's interesting. So, of course, I'm like, oh, scallops, I've done that. And <laughs> I think what's good about the book is that you need to branch out more and not be afraid if you're not that great in the kitchen or if you haven't had a lot of experience that you can make these things. Yeah. And one thing to keep in mind with any recipe, whether it's something out of ours or anything, is if you really mess it up, you've screwed up, that's okay. You're going to eat 20, 30 more times this month. So you can just make, you can just make it again. <laughs> it's that's okay. Awesome. <laughs> you know, it's okay. It's uh, it's not. And I think a lot of home cooks get really stressed out if it isn't perfect. And right. being a restaurant, you know, cook, no restaurant cook ever is like, oh, yeah, I finally learned it. No, every single time you make it, even if you made it 10,000 times, you're learning something that time, like, oh, man, the temperature, I should have tilted the pan like this, I should have done this, you know, so it's never 100% uh, set, it's always getting a little bit better. And back to what you said earlier about growing up at home with your mom and her, you know, limited approach to spices and flavors, no matter what family or style of food you grew up in, you still have something that's a childhood favorite, right? So whatever you make, I mean, there's got to be no matter. And, you know, as of somebody, if you're cooking for your family, you got to keep in mind, you know what, you're not competing with Chef Pierre, you're competing with no one. What, there's something that you make that will forever be your kid's favorite dish. They will always come back to it. It could literally be sloppy Joe out of a can, but the, the memory and the camaraderie and the family and the time associated is really what makes it special. And every family has that. It's the craziest thing, right? Yeah, I, I, it's funny. Now I think about it. I think I liked her spaghetti sauce. There you it go. took me a little while. Yeah. And my daughter loves when just as simple as just getting some grass fed ground beef and putting a truckload of garlic in it. She's like, there I want some go. beef and garlic, but that, I mean, and some salt. That's it. She loves it. Um, let's go on to chicken. I love chicken. I love lemon. So the rustic lemon chicken looks amazing. The split chicken with lemon garlic sauce and roasted vegetables. And then you have a chicken madras and yogurt sauce with harissa. I love harissa. I found there's a company out of New York. 
And I found this at Whole Foods and they make a harissa, they make a romesco. Is it romesco? It's like the yeah. almonds and the paprika yep. and the, yeah. Yep. And oh my gosh, they're amazing. It's all fresh ingredients. And now I'll make some skirt steak for my daughter and some rice and I'll put a bunch of romesco or harissa on it. So I thought, I, but I want to get back to making it myself too. So it's really nice. What are some of your favorite chicken recipes in the book, Alan? You know, first with harissa, Anytime you put harissa on a dish, you feel really cultured. You're just like, ooh. <laughs> ooh, look yeah. at me. <laughs> so connected to the ways. Yeah. Um, yes. So good. So tasty. Yeah. And that's the great thing about being American is that while on one hand, we lack a food culture, on the other hand, we've adopted so many. And we get to eat more diversely than maybe any other group of people in the world, which is such a privilege, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, you know, the, the simplest chicken dish is simply just taking a whole chicken and throwing it in the oven. And when Bijou showed me that it was pretty much that simple, (laughs) my mind was kind of blown because you look at uh, a simple roasted chicken and you think, wow, this has got to be so complicated. But the reality is, especially if you're cooking for a lot of people or trying to do other courses, it's really the simplest way to make a meal because the oven takes care of everything, right? Wow. Yeah, I should do that because I always buy the rotisserie chickens and then I'll just saute up my own garlic and lemon and other, you know, spices and put it on it. And I'm like, I should just make it. So you've inspired me, both of you. Yeah, yeah. The interesting thing is like you can go to Whole Foods and a lot of the local markets and get a really killer, delicious roast chicken. The whole thing will be less than 10 bucks, which is amazing, right? But you can, I think people at home don't probably know, you can buy a whole chicken uncooked for like five bucks or six bucks. And right. you can chop it up, do anything with it. It's great for barbecue. It's great for like chicken noodle soup, right? There's been all this stuff about how chicken noodle soup really does help, you know, uh, has an effect on reducing inflammation, has the bone broth part of it has beneficial. And you can go buy a whole chicken, chop it up, make soup. But one of uh, my favorite things that Alan makes, and it's kind of a, a version of things that we've done, is we've both got cast iron pot, you know, big pots with lids. We'll chop up chicken, throw a bunch of stuff in there, put it into the oven. I do with potatoes and black olives, which is one of my favorite things. Um, Alan has been making one this last year. It was, had a little bit, oh, it had more of the Japanese flavors to it. Yeah, it was super good. Like, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. What I'll do is I'll just take a cast iron because I'm lazy. And, <laughs> and I'll start with like a little mirepoix of like carrots, onions, maybe some celery or fennel. Um saute all of that, throw in some tomatoes, maybe some potatoes as well, and then just throw a whole chicken in there and huck it in the oven. And what we'll do is we'll start with the lid on, you know, 350, 400 degrees for like, you know, 30 minutes or so, and then pull the lid off to get it to to brown. Um, Mm. And then when you pull this thing out, you just tear the chicken apart and it all mixes together. That goes, you know, great by itself, great on top of rice, great in a, you know, grilled sandwich, just, mm. <laughs> it's basically great on anything. This is also the problem of <laughs> if you can, if you can cook basic food, anytime you crave something like, oh, I know how to make that. I'm just going to go home and make that now. See, so that's awesome. That's a good problem to have. And then, uh, you know, it forces you to stay active too. I think you also want to be engaged with the cooking process. You can't see it as a chore. You have to actually see it as something that is going to help you take some time away from all the other stresses that you have in life rather than see it as a stressor in and of itself. And so um, 
I think staying conscious of not trying to be perfect and trying to have more fun is important, especially with others. You know, uh, for example, I, I hate grocery shopping. I find it not only to be burdensome, but I also find it to be a bit lonely because you're just kind of walking through this store by yourself, you know, picking out stuff. So I'll invite people to go shopping <laughs> with me. I'm like, hey, you want to go get groceries together? And it's actually <laughs> pretty awesome. enjoyable, right? Um, whether we're shopping together or shopping separately, it's just more fun and it can be social. And that's actually the whole love- point of this book is that cooking can be and needs to be social. I actually love grocery store shopping. I, I always, do too. I love going to grocery stores and there's always all sorts of characters there and it's fun and you end up meeting randoms and it's great. I think it's lovely. Yeah, I love it too. It's like some time alone. I can take my time. I don't have mom, 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 mom. You know, it's like just my space. I think it's really nice. Seafood. You've yes. got baked salmon and pastry. Okay, here's this. This is so interesting to me because I'm obsessed like with Mexican. So tomatillo sauce. I love tomatillo sauce. You have a lobster mac and cheese yeah. with fresh tomatillo sauce. And I thought, I had never thought about that. That sounds so freaking amazing. <laughs> How did you come up with that? So mac and cheese, we all love. Um, lobster, I don't do a lot of shellfish, but I love lobster. And here's something that inherently lobster's got a little bit of that sweet fattiness to it. Mac and cheese is definitely fatty and creamy. So a way to take some of that off and make it a little bit more digestible and a little bit, you know, something that you can actually, excuse me, eat is to add a little bit of acid and vinegar and a little tart tartness to it. So the tomatillo was a perfect, something unusual and a little bit, you know, less expected than, because I would normally make mac and cheese to dump a bunch of hot sauce on there. But this is just a way to, and a lot of people don't know what tomatillos are. You know, they're the little green tomato looking plants that have, a, you know, a wrapper skin around it. Um, they're beautiful. That's what all green chilies are made with or green um, salsas are made with. It's lovely. It has a little bit of earthy tartness to it that goes great with mac and cheese. It fancies it up. Now your kids can, your kids can go off to college in the East Coast and tell everyone about their favorite tomatillo sauce. <laughs> It'd be a great dipping sauce for a grilled cheese sandwich as well. See, it's oh. this is now you're now you're thinking. Oh, See? okay. Oh, this is really good. We 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 just sit around and make this stuff up, you know. And I yeah. think that's that's what's fun about I think cooking and a lot of these recipes is that they are uh, there's a lot of whimsy in them. Yeah. 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 For sure. Amazing. You've got the miso and maple marinated cod with sweet pea risotto. That looks amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But for time's sake, I have to keep going. Unfortunately, I know you guys have to go soon. Uh, I could talk up with you guys. You got to come back. We just go through every single recipe. (laughs) Uh, For pork, you've got country style hoisin ribs. When I was a kid, and there was this Chinese restaurant we used to go to. And I would go insane for the spare ribs. Now, is that a similar thing? Because I haven't eaten them since I was a kid, I'll be honest. So is this like, is a hoisin, is that, that's a Chinese spite or is that in that family? That's exact. That's exactly yeah. the vibe. It's, yeah. it's when it's, it's that, it's that delicious pork rib. You can't get off your mind. Yes. So you yeah. have to, you have to uh, make it. Cause okay. when, when you go to a Chinese restaurant and get it, it's so ridiculously tender and it just comes apart. And the hoisin gives it a little bit of that sweetness. And there's some mysterious like flavor notes in hoisin that is got like star anise in it. It's got these, I can never quite figure out what it is. It's like this really earthy, leathery kind of beautiful note in there. So I love it. It's one of my favorite dishes. Yeah. I mean, I literally have not had it since I was a child, so I'm going to have to fix that. <laughs> All right. Beef, lamb, and bison. I love flank steak. I actually like skirt steak more because I love the fat. 
Yeah. I like flank steak too. I love this title flank steak with torn heirloom tomatoes. I mean, it's just, it's such a good visual. You could just picture the tomatoes just sort of being opened up and it's just lovely. And the picture is beautiful too. It worked. That was the whole idea was to, you know, cause you get these beautiful heirloom tomatoes. And for people that aren't familiar, they're the really kind of uneven lumpy looking tomatoes. Um, and there's, you can grow them at home. They come out beautifully. Um, and they're usually have a little bit more texture and flavor. They taste like tomatoes tasted the first time you ate one at a farm or when you went to, you know, when you went somewhere in the country and had it. Um, and the torn part, because they're already such a beautiful color and the flesh inside from the skin outside has these different textures and colors. When you cut it with the knife, it's very pretty, but when you tear it apart, you, you get to see the, how beautiful it really is. And it just looks really cool on a plate, you know, with some olive oil, lemon juice and all the things together. It's quite lovely. I'd also say too that, you know, cooking doesn't have to be precious. Uh, I think that, you know, at least my plating style is much more Jackson Pollock than it is. <laughs> there we uh, go. Refined, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I definitely, and I love lamb uh, rib chops. Oh my yes. God. And what I do with mine is it's crazy because I put the oven on broil, braise them in a pan first. Sorry, I brown them or I guess, is it braise? I'm not sure what the word is. I sear, sear them. them. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. I sear them first. Then I put them in the oven and then I put some uh, sea salt or kosher salt or whatever I have. And that's how I eat it. Like yep. it's that simple. I love those. You have an Irish lamb stew with Guinness and soda bread. So it's interesting to me because I'm so into the rib chops that I forget like, oh, there's other cool things that I can do with this type of meat. Yeah. The, um, the lamb stew is one of my favorite things that I've, so I worked in restaurants years ago where every day my job was to make a soup every single day. So I got in the habit of making uh, barley and lamb, barley and beef. But the interesting thing there is a soda bread, like making that soda bread. It was so simple to make, but it's such a beautiful bread. If you look at the picture, it's really gorgeous. It looks really complex. It is not. It is incredibly simple to make and you get to make a soda bread. I mean, like, you know, everyone's been doing the sourdoughs and all that, but who's made a soda bread lately? And yeah, we really want- what about that? And when we were doing the book, we wanted to do something with, you know, uh, something where we were braising something in a little bit of beer just to keep it interesting and different and not make it seem like a very stuffy old world sports nutrition book. We wanted it to just be fun and whimsical and like, you know, interesting. Yeah, it definitely is. So I had gotten confused. So they're seared, which I did with the lamb in the pan. I put a little bit of oil. I like avocado oil. Or you can probably sear it without anything, right? Because there's so much fat yeah. in the lamb. And then braising is, describe that to me and our audience. Go ahead, Alan. Take it. Braising is? Braising is just, you know, lower heat, long period of time, pouring that sauce back over itself. Yeah, so braising is cooked in liquid and um, searing is in a pan with just a little bit of oil. But braising, you typically have liquid in it and it's kind of slow cooking. You keep kind of basting it over and over to get all the flavors in there. Yeah. You have these these really cool cast iron pans now that have um, little nubs on the on the lid that kind of self-braise because the liquid evaporates up and then it drips then back it, on. So that's, that's a, pretty cool. That's a nice, that's a nice way to braise something. And then for meatless, I love falafel. You have falafel with chunky cucumber yogurt sauce. I love eggplant. You have an eggplant and onion fried wild rice. Let's get to the sweet because I am all about the dark chocolate and the star chocolate bark, which I haven't made yet, but I want to with spiced pumpkin seeds. It sounds so good. And then you have a cashew honey brittle 
which I thought was great because I've always heard of peanut brittle, but cashews have such a nice creamy texture to them. Yeah. It seems like a great combo. Use the butternut. Yeah, use the better nuts. Yeah, why you know? not? And the cashews have that nice, like you said, like a nice, nice, soft, uh, meaty texture to it. And all of those recipes, you know, you can adjust it a little bit. It's not going to be like store-bought brittle where it's hard and crunchy and all that, but it'll be yours. You know, you get to make it at home. It's your perfect brittle. Your kids are going to love it. Your neighbor's kids are going to love it. It's going to be great. Well, you guys are great. I, I really, I invite you back anytime. This has been so much fun. Feed Zone Table, Family Style Meals to Nourish Life and Sport, Bijou Thomas and Alan Lim. All right, Bijou, where do we find you and on social media and on your, do you have a website? What's going on? And the same for you, Alan. Uh, you can find us both through Scratch Labs. Uh, my social media is at Bijou the Chef, B-I-J-U, the Chef. Alan? Yeah. And for me, again, at Scratch Labs is one way to find me. Info at Scratch Labs. Uh, Scratch Labs is a small sports nutrition company that we started about nine years ago, um, making effectively really simple, natural sports nutrition products that solve a lot of the GI distress issues that athletes have when they're out there pushing themselves really hard. You can also find me at Alan at Scratch or Alan Scratch on Instagram. Now, how is Scratch spelled? It's it's different, right? Spelled with a K, yeah. S-K-R-A-T-C-H-L-A-B-S um, dot com. And, you know, it was built on the idea that uh, for athletes, uh, cooking from scratch is really just the best way to go. And that I think also, too, you know, and this, this idea of, of Bijou and I being immigrants, it's this, I think, American dream or narrative that no matter where you are in life, you can always start from scratch. It's the idea or possibility that we can reinvent ourselves and that includes what you cook at home right absolutely you guys are wonderful did sorry bg do you want to add something no no i was just like cheering alan on there that was great that's a great way to wrap it up it really is i want to thank you all again for being on talk healthy today oh and you can get the book through velo press v-e-l-o-p-r-e-s-s dot com guys thank you so much this was super fun thank you you're welcome thank you for having us Thank you so much for listening to Talk Healthy Today. I hope you got as much out of the show as I did. I feel so lucky to talk to so many incredible people to help you live your healthiest life. So please rate, review, and subscribe, and never miss an episode of Talk Healthy Today.